Hello and welcome to the Total Clarity Podcast. I'm Mike Varley. And I'm Jesse Hyatt. And this is week 37 of our 52-week walk around New York City. Wow, we're getting there. Yeah. So this week we had a theme in Manhattan. We're back in the city. Yeah. And the theme of this week was writers of Manhattan. That's right. We did sneak in one Brooklyn writer, but we'll get to that in a second. Before we dive into the writers, we wanted to draw your attention to those that are watching to the fact that we're wearing our sweatshirts again. Yeah, we're wearing our Dichotity crew neck sweatshirts once again. Yep. And a few weeks back, we did a little recap on this season's Dichotities, and we hadn't had it ready for sale, but now it is ready yeah. for sale. We figured out the cost structure and how we wanted to go about doing that. So we put them on again to let you know that they are now on sale. Right. And we'll put a little link so that if you want to refresh your memory or hear for the first time what these sweatshirts are all about, you can see that. We're not going to repeat ourselves because mm -hmm. we've already done it. So we'll put a link about that. But do you want to talk a little bit about the cost structure? Sure. I think you have your uh, you have it pulled up on your phone, yeah. right? Yeah, I have, it, I have it written here on my phone. And um, we've also made a little graphic that maybe we'll put over this video. That's we, right. meaning you, Mike, maybe you'll do that. I will do that. Um, perfect. So in all of our cost structures, we break things down by variable costs and fixed costs. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Variable costs are costs that show up in every single item. So, for example, in these sweatshirts, there's the labor that goes into printing them because every single sweatshirt needs to be printed. So that's 10 minutes for printing, there's time for heat setting, there's time for setting up the screen, there's time for cleaning the screen. In total, we say that it takes 40 minutes to print each sweatshirt. Mm -hmm. There's delivery labor, which we have as free because we walk these sweatshirts, we add it into our route. We don't do it on a separate day. We add it into the route that we're already doing anyway. Yep. So we don't charge for that. There's material cost, uh, 74 cents of ink per shirt. <laughs> and there's the crew neck itself, which these cost $7 a piece from Udelco. And I didn't say our 40 minutes is at $25 an hour for the printing. So that's $16.68. So our variable costs total are $24.41. And again, variable costs. So that's like for each sweatshirt, the actual cost of each sweatshirt is $24.41. Does right. that make sense? Yes. That makes sense. So then there's also the fixed costs, which are the costs that you pay once. Yeah. And then it gets, has to get filtered in through however many you think that, you know, you might sell or you might make. So mm -hmm. for these, the fixed costs are the screens, yeah. which cost $169 to get two screens made. Mm -hmm. It's the squeegee, which is $15.12. It's the blackout tape, which is what you use on the screen to cover up the edges and make sure that ink doesn't go through, $13.07. It's the design labor, which took us 15 hours to design these, $25 an hour. That's 375 
And then it's the rental car to Udelco, which was $65. Yep. So our total fixed cost here is $637.19. We did a little standard wholesale calculation and a standard retail markup just to give an idea of what the industry might charge. And then we basically just pick a number in between that that like makes sense. And so these sweatshirts are going to be $89 a piece. That's right. Which is what they are. I was going to say, which, which I think is a great deal, but I realize in talking about pricing and labor, I think just the general concept of like, that's a great deal, that's not a great deal, that seems like a lot, that seems like a little. It's all so dependent on who you are and what you know about things and what you like and how much money you have and what money means to you and like how you were brought up in how you were supposed to buy things and spend money on things. So I don't even think I should be putting a judgment on that. That is just the price. And I just explained it very clearly <laughs> why it's the price. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> it and is the appropriate price. Yes. Uh, based on math. Based on math. Yeah. And nothing else. Yeah. So that is something that we've been pretty transparent and interested in. We've said it a number of times on this podcast and in person with various people. We are interested in demonstrating how much things actually cost. And, you know, trying to put together goods that reflect that, that are also uh, not just created for this purpose, that are sourced by us as things that are reused, but nice items. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, I especially think that understanding the reason that I wanted to like read through all of these costs for this this time, I don't think we did it last time, mm -hmm. is that I do think that understanding, I think a lot of times when we think about like how much something costs, we think more about those variable costs, which are the costs that go into each thing. So like I said, in total, each one of these separately is $24.41 cost to us. Right. And then it, the markup is to $89. So I think a lot of times people are like, well, how did that you get there. Like, how did you figure that you should add $60 to that? That's a four-time markup. Like, I'm confused. They're trying to gouge me or something. Right. But in reality, there's all these other costs that have to get filtered in, and you have to pay yourself for your time, and you have to pay for the all the materials and all these things that you just sort of are there already. Yeah. And I think it maybe people don't always think about that. Yeah. And it's a little bit arbitrary. Like, there is math, but there is also a little bit of like, well, maybe this seems right, or this is how many maybe we'll sell, and it's kind of hard to know. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't believe this is part of the sheet that we present, but there also is the number that we have to break even with the oh, costs. it's on there. Oh, it is on there, yeah. too. Yeah. It's, so, um, so the break-even formula is the fixed costs divided by the price minus the variable cost. Yeah. And we break even at 9.9 .9 sweatshirts. That's right. So if we sell 10 sweatshirts, we'll get a 0.1 profit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so, I mean, I don't know. Will we sell 10 sweatshirts? 
really unclear. Yeah. It'd be wonderful to sell town sweatshirts. If we don't, that's totally fine too. But it yeah. gives it gives you a sense of like, oh wow. Yeah, well, then I guess it makes sense to be $89 in so far as like if it were cheaper, then you you're gonna have to sell like twenty something like you know, I don't even think we have 20 sweatshirts no, we to didn't, sell. We didn't buy 20 sweatshirts to sell. But And then if it goes the other way, too, like 10 sweatshirts keeps it pretty nice and unique. If we were only selling, if we only had five sweatshirts or something, we'd have to double the price. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah I think it I think it helps. I hope it I hope it's kind of interesting to people. I find this endlessly fascinating. Yeah, we both do. We hope you find it interesting as well. If you do, uh, leave some comments. Let us know because we like talking about it. Yeah, we can definitely talk about it more, but I think we probably don't want to overdo it if it's not something that people want to know about. Right. If they're just like, give me, just give, just let me buy a sweatshirt. Yeah. <laughs> but these That's will fine. be on sale for the next uh, two to three weeks until we go into spring. So March is definitely sweatshirt weather. Yeah. We're kind of getting to that time where it's like one day it's warm, the next day it's cold. So mm -hmm. get yourself a sweatshirt. But you know, sweatshirt weather lasts also. Oh, you sure. Can get, you can get yourself a sweatshirt now and prep for... One of my favorite times to wear a sweatshirt, I mm -hmm. got to say, is like pre-midsummer, like sometime in like early-ish June mm. when it's warm during the day. But you know, if you're going to be out late, especially if you're going to end up like on a rooftop or something, mm -hmm. bring a sweatshirt. Yeah. Because it gets chilly. Yeah. And it's such a like nice chilly because you haven't felt chilly for a while. Yeah. So. That's a little Rigo Foresight. Your, it's, a, it's Rigo Foresight. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Again, if you don't know what we're talking about, click the link below Rigo to site. learn what Rigo is. Rigo Flight. Yeah. But that's, I think, it for now on yeah. these sweatshirts. I think uh, we can move on. Yeah. Let's go on to our writing. Okay. So, yeah, we did a walk surrounding writers of New York. Writing in New York has a very rich, long history of uh, different people that have come to make it here as writers, people that have moved here after they've made it as writers. And there are so many writers that have a history and roots here that you could do an entire year of walking around and each week just talk about one writer. Sure. And you would still probably, I don't know, you probably need to do it for 10 years. You know, if you were... At least, and then more writers are being made every day. That's so. right. That's right. So what the cross-section of writers that we're going to talk about today... I would say is fairly arbitrary. <laughs> we tried to visit uh, locations where the homes were already in place, so that are still in place. There are some exceptions there, but that was one. It tried to have some degree of diversity in both the eras and uh, sexes and racial backgrounds, uh, so that is represented to some degree, but ultimately, as I just said, you really can't encapsulate the breadth and depth of all the writers that exist in New York. So mm -hmm. it is a little bit of a crapshoot what we're doing. But we hope that you enjoy the ones that we did cover. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I guess we'll just get right into it. Let's get into it. 
where I guess you're leading the, the way here. I was going to ask if we're starting in Brooklyn. You mentioned earlier that when I said it was the Raiders of Manhattan, there's also one in Brooklyn. That's right. There is one in Brooklyn, and that's where we're going to start. Perfect. Yeah. So following along with the route that we devised for the week, we take the train from our home to the Grand Street L stop mm -hmm. in Brooklyn, which is at the corner of uh, Grand and Bushwick Avenue. That's right. And we walk just 0.2 miles or so down to where Betty Smith, who was the author of a tree grows in Brooklyn. That's right. A tree. Ding, ding, ding. A tree grows in Brooklyn. <laughs> the famous book that is often a joke, like, haha, a tree grows in Brooklyn? I don't right. believe it. Or when you see a tree, it's like, oh, look, it's the tree that grew in Brooklyn. Yeah. yeah. I, can't, I can't tell you how many times I feel like I, people told that joke to me when I first lived in Brooklyn or any time, you know, when I first lived here. Yeah. It just seemed like a funny thing to say. And now we have the Million Trees Project, so now the book should be renamed Million Trees Grow in Brooklyn. Million Trees Grow in Brooklyn, that's right. <laughs> well, and I didn't really, I mean, it might have been that I just forgot about this, but I didn't realize now how close I used to live to that location. Yeah. So I used to live at the corner of Metropolitan and Bushwick, and we were only like three or four blocks from that. I mean, the Grand Street stop was sometimes the stop I would get off at to go home. Yeah. So just really, I don't know, half a mile from where I was. But did you know until this week that that's where that was? That's what I was just saying. I don't, I don't, I may have and had um, forgotten about it, but yeah. I just realized that that was the case, yeah. I think for some reason, like I remember reading that book as a kid and really liking it. And then not knowing as a kid, like the different neighborhoods of Brooklyn. Right. And then when, by the time I did know the different neighborhoods of Brooklyn, for some reason thinking it was somewhere further south. Mm -hmm. I don't really know why, just thinking it was like maybe like near the Navy Yard or something. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, I don't have I, any reason for it. Well, the Navy Yard, that is a portion of Williamsburg potentially as well, you know. Yeah. It's, it, I mean, yeah, the neighbors, so. it, the South Williamsburg neighbors, yeah. the naval, neighbors, the Naval Yard. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, so uh, a little bit, just some facts. We have some facts about all the authors, just the, the tantalizing ones I can pull. I can see <laughs> Jesse is already trying to steal looks at my notebook, well, which is... It's hard not to when it's right there. We're right. We're read, We're talking me, about writers, and you're a writer, and I'm I like read to read like, your writing. So, Betty Smith, uh, the tree grows in Brooklyn is largely based on her experiences growing up, which I think a mm -hmm. lot of people know. Yeah, it was. I don't know if it was initially kind of thought of that way, mm -hmm. but it, it, she came to communicate that to people. Mm -hmm. You know, as it got famous, right. and it was immediately successful. Now it was success. It came out in 1943, okay. which, if you can think about when that is, that coincides with World War II. Sure. So it was extremely popular with soldiers overseas. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because I mean, I, I think probably a lot of people that resonated with their upbringing to some degree. Yeah, probably. And I mean, although she, it was, 
Probably the soldiers that were overseas were maybe a generation younger, but ultimately the idea... How old was she idea, when it came out? Uh, I'm not 100% sure, but she was writing about her childhood, so yeah. I don't... I, well, did she grow up in the Depression? Is that when this was based? Or, or was it just that she was an it was immigrant a, family and it was... Because they, they were poor. That was the whole yeah. point of the story, basically. I mean, I think it, it wasn't was, the point of the story, but it was like that was the main focus of the story was that they were really poor. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it was... And their community was poor. But it, And her father was like a, a dreamer, but he was an alcoholic. And right. like, yeah, it, right. it takes, it was like, I think it was broken up into four books and it's like different sections of her life growing up for like a period of two years, I think. Oh. Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm not, I, I can't 100% remember if it was during the depression or not. I, I think their, their recollection I have was that it was just like they were going to be poor regardless if it was depression right. or not depression. Yeah, I think it was more that they were immigrants. Yeah, but I, I think, I mean, the same way that it resonated with us as kids, I think it was just it's an easy read and yeah. fun and yeah. probably people saw their upbringing in it in yeah. some way too. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, I think even... Sorry, this whole podcast is just going to be about this one book. Um, <laughs> I think even as a kid that didn't grow up like that, I, you know, really at all, yeah. um, there still was something that resonated with me. Yeah. Just about, I think something just about like recognizing that life is a struggle at a young age. Mm -hmm. And like this is a written from the perspective of a child. Yeah. Noticing these things and like finding joy in like the small the small things but also being aware of the larger struggle. Mm. Yeah, maybe. And it like a lot of times you don't as a kid you're not thought of someone that can understand these bigger concepts and I think reading about other kids that do understand these bigger concepts like made me feel seen or something or un like made me feel like oh yeah some like other people get it too yeah yeah sure i think that makes sense i don't know what i mean that's a consequence of it being uh, uh prescribed to you in <laughs> in school as well yeah i did also have to read it for school yeah yeah, yeah. so she ended up writing four novels Okay. And the first three of them were set in Brooklyn. Oh. And they were all the same kind of autobiographical vein. I guess mm -hmm. that was kind of her thing. Yeah. And the fourth one was set in Ann Arbor, Michigan, I believe. Okay. And that was her experience going with her husband while he was going to college, I believe. Okay. And yeah. That was uh, that was the the breadth of her novel experience. The the again the first one was like immensely popular. The second one was uh, not as popular, mm. and then the other two were didn't receive the same traction. Mm. But I mean, the first one was enough for anybody to be yeah. you know yeah a household name totally. Uh, there were two movies and a Broadway musical made about A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. And the first movie won two Os Oscars. Wow. Yeah. Uh, one uh, child actress. Uh, was a, It was a special back when they, they had awards for kid actors. Oh, they did? Yeah, explicitly. Okay. And so the 
person that played uh, her, I think Fanny, I'm probably getting this wrong, but I think uh, the person that played her uh, won the Oscar. Oh, cool. And then the person that played her dad, supporting actor, won uh, an Oscar as well. Oh. Yeah. And so as far as the actual building itself, which we have footage for all the buildings, it is under renovation currently. Mm -hmm. So there's a porta potty in front and uh, <laughs> construction workers coming in and out. Yeah. But I believe it to be the same building still. It is a, a nice building. It's, yeah. it's an impressive facade and there's looks like there's a restaurant on the first floor now or something oh, going yeah. on. It's like wood yeah, paneling, okay. uh, uh, a wood paneled facade uh, that's part of it. But uh, yeah, I, it made me wonder if part of the selling point of it was that it was the tree grows in Brooklyn house or not. You know? Yeah, I wonder. It's interesting. I mean, with this whole thing, I feel like there's, this might be the first one where a lot of our landmarks are kind of just these random apartment buildings. Yeah. That like, some of them have plaques, which I guess we'll get into, but that one didn't have a plaque, right? And the ones that don't have a plaque, like, you don't know what it is unless you know what it is. Yeah. And because there's so many writers, like, they're just, they've lived in places just like we've lived in. Like, <laughs> yeah. there's so many buildings in New York that have, if they're long, if they're older than, like, 50 years or something, like, they've probably had some famous people living in them to some degree. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. I mean, any, I don't even know if I would, at first I'd say, like, any real estate person worth their salt would, like, know this. But, like, I mean, it might, you would have to be maybe totally ignorant to, like, not know something like this. Because it's, mm. it's, like, people, if you talk to you know, superintendents or whatever, like, this information yeah, is something would, that would, yeah. and then you leverage you that. The, address at some yeah, yeah. point. Yeah, exactly. Show up. Just yeah. once. Yeah. And then you use that to sell the right. You know, you yeah, find somebody probably. that's interested in that. Because, you know, seven hundred Grand Street does not have a a book that millions of millions right. of copies were sold about it. Right. So. But at the same time then I also don't know how many of these are landmarked. And so part of it like you might sell it under that if someone cares or you might just be selling it because of the location and someone's like okay i don't care i'm like just going to renovate this building and rent it out as condos maybe yeah. i don't know it's hard to know it's hard to know depends on the depends on the realtor yeah okay we're going to move on because okay, we have uh, a bunch of uh, authors to get to yeah let's get to them next so we walk over the williamsburg bridge and then we go uh downtown all the way. Mm -hmm. Yep, yeah. that's what I was looking for. <laughs> and we go to Battery Park, and we are, or Battery, the, the neighborhood, which is known as Battery Park, Fidei, I don't know what you want to call it. Yeah. And we go to a really interesting set of buildings where Herman Melville was born. Wow. Yeah. He was born on 15 State Street. Okay. Now, this is one of two instances here where the original building does not exist yeah certainly there are plenty of writers homes either they live there they're born there whatever that don't exist in new york city this is just two instances that we happen to cover and it's interesting because you go down to, to where that his house was and there are two buildings that are completely 
out of place oh. compared to everywhere else. It is a uh, shrine to Elizabeth Ann Seton. It's a it's a uh, church. Okay. And then it is the James Watson House. And these are, I think, 7 and 9 State Street or something like that. Okay. And then uh, 15 State Street is a giant tower. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So these other people got their houses saved, but then they didn't save Herman Melville's? No, they did not save Herman Melville's. Well, so James Watson House was built in 1793. Oh, wow. And it has these beautiful pillars. And, you know, we're playing the footage now. Who's James Watson? I feel like. I don't want to ask because I won't want to see. No, no, I, I like I don't know who it is. I don't think, I don't, I don't think he was anybody. I think oh, I read okay. it, but like it's just because his house it's has been there since 1793. Okay. They just know who's whose it was. I could be wrong, but honestly, I don't think anybody could call me on it. That's watching this, so uh, you yeah. know, if you are, call me out in the comments. But yeah, uh, yeah. and call so, us out, but don't write us off. Yeah. Oh, boy. Sorry. Uh, so I'll that, try not to make any more dumb puns. So that was done in 1793, and it still looks... I mean, I think they've changed, you know, they've repainted it, and so, like it, it changes slightly from okay. era to era, okay. but it is, it is still the same, you know, exterior. And then the uh, Shrine of Elizabeth Ann Seton is actually from 1965, mm. but they did a good job making it look kind of similar. And I don't know who she is either. She was the first saint born in America. Oh. We've actually encountered her before in Staten Island. We were at her gravesite. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Why was she a saint? She was very good. <laughs> you don't know. I, I mean, she... I was the first saint in America. I mean, she, obviously she performed some miracles. You need to be a saint to perform right. some miracles. You know what? Okay, I remember talking about this because then I asked you a whole bunch of questions. You didn't have the answers. So I was Googling, like, what are the miracles that people have done? Yeah. And then I read to you for a long time from my phone. You're right. While we were walking. Yeah, and I still don't remember. I don't remember either. <laughs> But I'd recommend it to people. It's a fun activity. Google Google about real miracles. And yeah. Lots of cool shit. Yeah. So the James Watson house is now, I think, he, it was an orphanage at some time. It may still be, but I, okay. I doubt it. I think, it's, I think it might be like a convent house. Oh, the okay. two of them are in some way linked Related. in a meaningful way. Cool. But it is, I mean, the, the buildings themselves would look tall and... and, and some other neighborhoods in the city right but in comparison there, it's, like... it's yeah it is impressive in one of those ways where like it really leaves a mark on you that like mm -hmm. there are all these buildings that are sky high and then there's these like two things that have just persisted crazy yeah, yeah. um as for melville himself he very famously wrote moby dick right he was not recognized in his day really Moby Dick, in particular, was considered to be like this rambling, raving book about, you know, the whale uh, industry, the whaling right. industry, which was a big deal back then. You know, right. whale, uh, you know, oil uh, was what lit these lamps. And, sure. Um, he had he himself had been involved in the industry, and so it was, you know, his oh, yeah. the experience that he had accrued informed the book. It was right. not. I don't think autobiographical in any way. I mean, no. it's about Captain Ahab chasing this whale, mm -hmm. which is representative of, you know, 
larger human struggle, you know. Right. Uh, but, but yeah, but he wrote while on the whaling ships, right? Um, I or don't not, know. Or was he just not on this, the whaling? Not this book okay. in particular. But there were other books that preceded this that were also about, um, you know, his uh, jaunts around right. uh, while whaling. I think that's really crazy and kind of cool because I feel like writing in general is thought of as like this sort of like soft skill, like someone that like sits at home and like just write. Like it's like there's no danger to it. But this dude was like, he was a writer. He had that like that like I'm gonna sit at home and write thing. But then he also was like a whaler. Like it's like the craziest job that people have ever had. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think it runs the gamut. I also, I mean, when you say that, I think of like Hemingway, which was that kind sure, of Sure, like, yeah. You know. That's a good point. Macho drinking man. Yeah. But I don't think Hemingway was like, like he went to the bullfights, but he didn't like fight a bull or like the running of the bulls. He didn't run with the bulls. He just got fucked up watching it. Like, <laughs> Well, was he was also involved in war. Oh, he was in the, he was? He yeah, was he like was a soldier? I believe, he, oh, okay. I believe right. he volunteered in the Spanish uh, Civil War. Uh, oh, okay. All right. So maybe he, yeah. he was, he was definitely, he had some grit in whatever he was. Okay. I mean, but that was, it was like, you know, too far in one of the direction. And there, there's plenty of other examples or adventurer writers, whatever. Sure. But I understand what you're saying. There's also yeah. the people I that think just, just like today. Right. We think of writers as like, oh, I'm a writer and I sit on my computer, or I sit and I write. Yeah. And it's not often, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. I'm sure there's plenty of writers out there today that are also doing crazy like physical things. But yeah. It just seems like a, like a, I don't even know what I'm trying to say. Yeah. For me, it's interesting to think of someone to have that duality. Yeah. Well. I'll th uh, when I think about what contemporary writing is, there's a section we can talk okay, about a little great. bit there. We'll get to it when you're ready. The, I've never read Moby Dick. I have read Bartleby the Scrivener. Is that also Herman Melville? Yeah, it's a short story. Oh. And I had forgotten that he had written it until I was doing the reviewing the notes for this. And that is about a guy that it's a it's a short story, fictional short story about this character Bartleby and it's the narr it's narrated through his boss okay. and he hires these scriveners which are guys that uh, copy legal documents okay and he had two guy two people in there before Bartleby that were kind of like uh, silly characters but they did their job whatever and then Bartleby started there and he was doing like a really great job mm. and then he did an okay job and then he was doing a bad job and then one day they gave him some work to do, and he he said, "I prefer not to." <laughs> and then he he kept just saying that was the only thing that he would say anymore. And they the uh, the narrator, his boss, was like having a hard time. He didn't know how to fire him. He couldn't do anything. Then he found out he was living inside the <laughs> building. And then rather than like deal with firing him, he just moved the offices. What? And then the people that took over. Uh, were had him like uh, detained and then he ended up in jail and he he said he I would prefer not to with respect to eating and then he ended up dying oh my god because he just gave up on life 
and it was it came out after Moby Dick, and there's kind of some uh, idea that perhaps you know it was his feelings of like I don't really I wrote this amazing thing, and nobody is respecting that I wrote this amazing thing, and like this is how I feel about my life right now, so oh. that I have to do this. So. Um, wow. Yeah, but I re- I remember enjoying it when I when I read it. I think it was high school. It might have been college. Yeah. But yeah. It was funny in the middle, and then it got pretty upsetting. Yeah. 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 I mean, it. it I think it's kind of the malaise of white collar work, I guess, in some ways too. Yeah. yeah. Well, I thought it was like George Costanza for a second. No, I don't think that that was but kind no, of a part of anybody's not. tool bag for writing back then. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, he had a very strong beard game. He would have done very well Herman in this Melville era. Did? He did, yeah. That's because it was the 1800s, right? Yeah. And there's that Portlandia sketch about how it's like the eight, like hipsters in the 18. I don't know. I don't know what sketch you're referring to. Design. <laughs> he, uh, yeah, and I think uh, that's it. I mean, he, there is. It's kind of a common theme with a lot of the writers that just happened to be picked. Uh, they were either gay or believed to be gay. Oh. Um, so they, it's scholars believe that he was gay, although huh. it was not something that uh, at that time had come out. So, okay. Yeah. Um, that's another part of his life, and then the on the hundredth anniversary of his birth, uh-huh. which was 1920, okay, which is 100 years from now. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. There's a lot of a lot of things that are running around this kind of 100 years ago time frame, which is interesting as we were going through this. Anyway, uh, on his centennial of his birth, there was revived interest or even one might say like kindled for the first time interest in his work. Yeah. And from there, there's there was just this long run of scholarly interest and, you know, writing academic papers and really investing in Moby Dick and his career as a whole. Oh, wow. And so that's... But, but he was not alive by then, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, he was, he was quite he gone. He was long gone. Yeah. 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 So that's, that's as Melville. As it is with a lot of artists and writers. Yeah. We don't, we don't pay attention to them until they can't, they can't participate in the conversation anymore. Yeah. Well, we have some writers that were very successful in their time and not so much now, and yeah. some that were not so much then and are now. Yeah. So. From there, we go up the west side over to Greenwich Village, uh-huh. which was a, and remains, uh, you know, a huge spot for artists. Sure. And there seemed to be, I don't, I, this kind of this, the, the picture that I created from these cross-section of writers, I don't know this to be 100% certain, but it, you know, it feels like there was this era around like the 1900s to, I don't, I don't know when, 30s, 40s, something like that, where you know, writers were very much like rock stars. Mm. And the, the era of the artists that we saw that were in Greenwich Village at the time were really treated like celebrities. Interesting. Yeah. And like who? Well, are we ta- oh, were well, you not, are we ready to talk about him? Well, we can go with the first one. She lived at 75 and a half 
Bedford Street. Oh, that's not a real street number. Well, it turns out. Is this Harry Potter? It's something like that. Oh. 75 and a half Bedford Street is where Edna St. Vincent Millay lived. Oh. One of the great literary names. <laughs> and she was uh, very popular in the first third of the 1900s. Uh-huh. She was the first female winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Poetry. And I'm going to put a little caveat to this. Uh. When the Pulitzer was formally the Pulitzer. So there were like three years before 1922 or 23 yeah. when there was like some quasi-Pulitzer that was awarded. Oh. And there were two uh, women poets that were awarded that then. Okay. So she was the first one to win it when it was formally the Pulitzer Prize. Okay. But it was... So two women won in the three years before it was formally... Form, yes. Formally... Yes. The Pulitzer. And then when did Edna win? It was either 22 or 23. I didn't, I didn't happen to write that down for some reason. Okay. Wow. But, that's kind of interesting, though, that, like, in the first couple years, it went to women, and then they were like, oh, wait, let's change it. And then it was, like, all men for 20-some years, and then Edna. Well, I don't know if it was first. all men for 20-something years after that. Oh, I thought you said in the 23rd year of the official Pulitzer. No, no, no. In oh, in 1923. 1923. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right, well. <laughs> Uh, but, I mean, the, that is something that I noticed that the early 20s were, you know, particularly progressive years for right. women, period. Interesting. In in New York and uh, in America, presumably yeah. as a consequence. I mean, New York at that time being very progressive, very avant-garde. Uh, she was openly bisexual and she was kind of seen uh, like she... When I was mentioned earlier, like the idea of like celebrities, she was considered this electric performer and like muse to the public at large. Oh, wow. And people would just flock to see her and really be enamored with her. Oh. Yeah. And so she also just had an, a number of lovers of both sexes as well that were also similarly enamored. She, she did not want to get married. She yeah. was, you know, just. Uh, yeah, I guess just amused to all. Wow. And she had a, uh, a poem that people, I guess, use the first line of very uh, frequently, which I thought was uh, applicable to your particular week this week. Oh, oh, what? It is. <laughs> I got excited and then I was like, what is it going to be? Uh, my candle burns at both ends. It will not last the night. <laughs> But ah, my foes, and oh, my friends, it gives a lovely light. Oh, well, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> so the candle burning at both ends that is yeah. an Edna St. Vincent Millay quote. Oh, interesting. So that wasn't a phrase to my, until she wrote it. To my knowledge, no. I mean, it's, uh, it's on the plaque that is on 75 and a half. Why is it 75 and a half, you may ask? I didn't ask it, but yeah, I, I could. One may ask. I might. It I, is... just, I just said it doesn't, it's not real. So I guess it's kind of like It's asking. because it's a tiny building. Oh, it's that tiny one? Yeah. Oh, I love that tiny house. Yeah, that's Oh, that's right. her house? Yes. Ah. Yeah. And so she... It's she... cute. If anybody's in New York, 
check out that tiny house. That's right. In Greenwich Village on Bedford It's Street. not tiny like the tiny houses of today where they're like on wheels and you can like fit it in your pocket or whatever. But it's like skinny and it's cute. Yeah. And yeah, so that she didn't live there for a long time, but she also was involved in the foundation of the Cherry Lane Theater, which is just down the street. Oh, and yeah. And that is the oldest off-Broadway theater in the city. Cool. I yeah. wonder if it's still... It looked like when we were there, they had signs up of shows. I wonder if they're still doing shows there, or like if they'll have shows post-COVID. Right. Yeah, I, I presume they will. Probably. Yeah. Cool. But And that little... Uh, Elbow Street there is one of the nicer streets in Manhattan as well, yeah. I'd say. It's nice. It's so quiet. Yeah. And it's really nearby, like, bustling bigger streets. But yeah. when you're on that, it's, like, just one block down and you feel like it's, yeah, it's like feels like you're in a little neighborhood. Yeah. So uh, that is Edna's very brief background. Uh, there's another home nearby, 5 Bank Street, is Willa Cather. Okay. And I guess I should, it's not a home because it is another instance of a building that has since been uh, destroyed. Oh. So now it is like a much larger apartment complex and Five Bank Street is a part of that, what makes up that complex. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Is Bank Street, that's in the West Village too? Or Everything here, we're still in Greenwich. Okay. Yeah. And she wrote novels of life on the plains. And she also, uh, she won the 1923 Pulitzer for the book One of Ours. And that mm. was the first, she was the first woman to win the Pulitzer Prize for Literature, 1923. Oh, wow, all right. Yeah. So she moved to New York in the early 1900s and just stayed. But there. then she wrote, she moved to New York, but then she wrote about the Plains? Yeah, she wrote about where she was from. Okay. And I... Even though there was not a, a location for that, I wanted to call it out because I had to read My Antonia uh, when I was in high school, mm. and it was maybe the hardest book. I remember it being particularly difficult to get through. Oh, really? Not because it was like language was difficult. It was just very much not a book that I could that handle. That you were wanting to read. Yeah. Yeah, I have no idea. I mean, the, Like just the content was slow yeah, or yeah. I mean it was about life on the plains yeah I just remember it was like a summer reading assignment yeah and I remember like reading it 10 or 15 pages at a time and either like falling asleep or just like reading it like with my like on my knees and like on the couch and being like ah, oh, I gotta read more <laughs> I gotta read more it's weird that yeah it's hard uh those books that you just can't get into it for whatever reason. Yeah, I don't think it's any indictment of the work. I, I would need to yeah. read again. It just wasn't, you know, something yeah, that I could read. It just wasn't grabbing as at that a time. teenager. Right. Yeah. But I, I mean, I think that's just as an interesting, important thing to think about when you think about books, where it's like, yeah. I'm forced to read this thing. And I must continue. Well, I think it's really interesting. I mean, this is something I kind of wanted to talk about at some point. Um, I read a lot. I used Cliff Notes a lot. Did you? No. Was it, did you, was it not like available or did I, you just feel like it was, that was like against 
your... I probably was, like, against... I may be, maybe in college I read a couple of them, but, like, ultimately I enjoyed reading for the yeah. most part, so it was just not something that I was going to do. I guess talking about burning a candle at both ends, I was doing that from an early age, and <laughs> I enjoyed reading, and if the book, like, grabbed me, I could, like... If, I, if it was a book that I was like, this is great, I would like fly through it and read the book. But a lot of times I would either just read the cliff notes because I was like, I can't get through this. Or I'd have that kind of experience where I'm like, okay, I have to read 10 pages. And I'd get through the 10 pages and be like, I don't even know what I just read. Like, like I'd read the whole book, like I'd be reading the words and I'd get to the end of a page and be like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know who I like this person doesn't mean anything to me this name is no one and like why did they who are these people what are they doing I don't know what I just it's like none of it was actually going in yeah and then sometimes I would read cliff notes first and then I'd read that like if I was having a hard time with the book I'd mm -hmm. read the cliff notes first so I could like understand who everyone was mm -hmm. and like understand the whole story mm -hmm. And then it would allow me to actually appreciate the writing mm -hmm. because I, like, knew what we were reading about. Yeah. So I used it in a lot of different ways. But I think something that isn't or at least wasn't really communicated to me, yeah. it was more just, like, you have to read this and then we're going to talk about it in class and, like, you can kind of participate in the 35-minute class that we have or not. Yeah. And I don't think I ever understood and I don't know if my teachers even understood that it was like part of this is about the like writing style. Mm -hmm. You know, like I think I was always just trying to like know the plot mm -hmm. and like it not even applying it to anything. Like there's, there's just so much more than like knowing the plot to a book. Yeah. And I feel like Cliff Notes was really good for knowing the plot. But then if I didn't read the book. Right. Then, then it's just like, I know what it's about, and that's it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what the teachers might be trying to test you on or, or what. I mean, I do think that being able to discern the plot through writing styles that might be difficult or you being unused to them mm. is in itself a useful exercise. Yeah. Which would be diffused by the idea of reading cliff notes. Oh. <laughs> But yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't really know. I would maybe we should at some point talk to a teacher that writes curriculum or something. Because honestly, I don't. I don't even know what the point of having kids read books is. Like, <laughs> besides, people should know how to read. But like, I think at I think I was like, I just have to read these books. I guess I have to prove that I know how to read. Right. Bigger words every year. Longer books. I don't know. I never really got the point. <laughs> <laughs> I think there are all sorts of reasons that you could be doing that. Yeah. I, I don't even know if it's worth getting into. We don't have to get any further into it. I just wanted to know if you ever used Cliff Notes. No. I wanted to know it publicly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, I probably did I think it's great. I think it's a great resource. Sure. Cliff. We'll, we'll put a link Thanks to a Cliff lot, Notes Cliff. in the... In yeah. The... <laughs> In case anyone wants to check out that site. <laughs> it's great. It's this great site. Anyway, uh, go on. Yes, we're going now over to 10th Street where there were three 
different, uh, three different authors that we covered, I'm sure countless more that lived on this one section between 5th and 6th Avenue on 10th Street. Uh, beautiful block, really gorgeous houses. And Sinclair Lewis was our first uh, author. Mm -hmm. He lived in 37 West 10th Street. And he was the first, another first, first oh. American to win the Nobel Prize in Literature wow. in 1930. And his whole vibe... What did he win it for? Do you know? Uh, the, it was... So the Nobel, I think in general, the Nobel Prizes are not in literature and not necessarily awarded for one book. Oh, it's... But yeah. the, when they like do their write-up, for why mm -hmm. uh, the book that was referenced was called Babbitt. Okay. And it actually uh, Babbitt is was turned into a word, which I've I've never heard it used, but it is it means a professional man who conforms unthinkingly to middle class prevailing middle class standards. Say that one more time. A professional man. Do you need the Cliff Notes version? <laughs> Shut up. A professional <laughs> man who conforms unthinkingly to prevailing middle class standards. Yeah, I need the cliff notes. <laughs> um, okay, got it. Got it. Yeah. So his whole interesting. Yeah, his whole work was critical of American capitalism and materialism in the span of time that was between the two world wars. Mm. So. Uh, yeah. And that sounds like it could still be. Yeah. Well, today. yeah. And so he was his first book uh, was I, 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 don't, or I think his first book sold like four million copies or something. Wow. Um, I, I can't believe I didn't write it down. So somebody any Lewis fans can uh, can uh, give me hell in the comments if you want. But or just write the name of the book. But the idea was, yeah, the idea was that he was very popular. Uh, in his time, but his popularity declined as okay. he went. Whereas some of his contemporaries and other genre, like F. Scott Fitzgerald and Hemingway, kind of ended up taking over as, in terms of popularity, gotcha. as as the decades, uh, in, you know, came. Yeah. Uh, however, he actually had a recent revival uh, due to his 1935 book, It Can Happen Here which was a dystopian satire about a fascist becoming president. Oh! If you might imagine why something like that would become popular in 2016. <laughs> it was, yeah. Yeah. So. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I thought this was interesting. This is a an excerpt from his Nobel acceptance speech. Uh, in America, most of us, not readers alone, but even writers, are still afraid of any literature which is not a glorification of everything American, a glorification of our faults as well as our virtues. America is the most contradictory, the most depressing, the most stirring of any land in the world today. Wow. So it's interesting because that feels resonant to stuff that's going on today. Totally. But that was at a time when America was ascendant. You know, mm. it had not achieved its superpower status at that time. Right. 1930, it was kind of in the midpoint, certainly. And that, had, I mean, that was just the crest of the depression. I mean, right. they had no idea how long that was going to last. But right. It, yeah. 
Yeah, that is interesting that the same sentiment can apply almost 100 years later and with a completely different context of where this country is in relation to the rest of the world. Yeah. 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 So that's Sinclair Lewis. The building associated with it is very nice. As I said, the, the whole yeah, block the whole is, 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 so really, is really beautiful. And uh, yeah, I'm sure I've already shown it at this point. I don't yeah. know what more there is to say about it. Now, just crossing the street over uh, to your right, uh, there are two houses. One I didn't write much about, but I want to call it out because as I was walking, as we were walking down the street, I saw it. It's Emma Lazarus. Mm -hmm. Emma Lazarus, very famous for writing the poem that is on the Statue of Liberty. What Give, does it say? Give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. Yes, a little more. Um, I don't remember how to. Yearning to breathe free. Oh, uh, did I get the beginning? Give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free. Yes. Oh, yeah. I'm kind of impressed with my memory. Good job. Thank you. So the, there's a lot more to her history as an activist as well as a writer, but there's a plaque on 18 10th Street that uh, in you know signifies that she lived there. And then just two houses down, it, Mark Twain. Oh. Yes, he lived at that house from 1900 to 1901. Oh, so earlier, or yeah, earlier. Like a classic New York move. Well, this was, yeah, I think. Sign a one-year lease and move on. Well, he only stayed there for that length of time because he was such a celebrity that people wouldn't stop bothering him. Oh, yeah. also feels fitting for that neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> and wow. so, so, yeah. So he was already really well-known when he moved. Yeah. Okay. And he, this house, in you know, in addition to having this Mark Twain uh, backstory, is actually known for being a haunted house. Oh. It's nicknamed the House of Death. Oh, what? Why? Many people have died there. There are believed to be over twenty-two ghosts in this home. What? Yes. And all separate. Like, did they know each other, or like? No, no. They didn't know each other. I mean, I'm presuming. Were they all like old? Like, were they like? I don't know. There, there isn't any. I didn't do any research on the 22. Again, this could have been a whole episode. Maybe one day. There was. We'll make it there's one particularly tragic one that happened fairly recently. Oh. Where uh, this man it was an attorney, Joel Steinberg. He beat his adopted daughter to death. What? Yeah, and she was six years old. Yeah. Oh, God. So, yeah, that's when, like, the, the House of Death name, like, really stuck. Yeah. And... When was that? I was, like, in this century. Jesus. Yeah. What a piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. And so, Damn. as I said, it's it's known for being inhabited by ghosts. Yeah. And somehow, uh, Mark Twain's ghost itself has been observed there, even though he was there for only one year. Oh, interesting. I mean, I don't think we... There's a lot that we're still, like, researching and hypothesizing about. about I don't ghosts? think we have the whole ghost thing figured out yet. Oh, you don't think so? <laughs> okay. Just, like, how they work and how they spread and everything. Right. Like, you know, right. we're learning new things every day. Somebody, uh, a woman came into their living room and saw a man dressed in all white with crazy 
wild hair, and she asked who he was, and the ghost replied, my name is Clemens, and I got problems here I gotta solve. Whoa, this, yeah. the um, paparazzi. Maybe, yeah. Wow, interesting. Yeah. All right. So that's that house. Wow. Do they give like, does someone live there now? People live there as Why? far as I can tell. I mean, you know. They shouldn't. Yeah. So turning the block down to 9th Street, just one okay. street, uh, we're at West 29 West 9th Street. Yeah. And there lie, or that's where <laughs> Maurice Sendak lived. Yeah, who's that? Maurice Sendak is a illustrator, author, known very, very famously for Where the Wild Things Are. Oh, yeah. You, okay, we were there earlier yeah. today. That's right. 1963 yeah. was when Where the Wild Things Are came out. He also, prior to that, illustrated the Little Bear series of books. I know that. Yeah, uh, that's a famous series. Uh, as of 2009, which is pretty outdated, uh, it had sold over 19 million copies, Where the Wild Things Are. Whoa. Yeah. That was a good book. I liked that book. It's a very iconic for its art style yeah. and for kind of being subversive. You know, a very simple story. A, a kid is sent to bed early yeah. without, uh, you know, getting his dinner because yeah. he's, he's misbehaved. And so he goes to where the where the wild things are to in be his, the king. In his sleep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know if he's in his sleep. Or, oh. I mean, I don't remember. If, I'm sure at the end of the book was he was dreaming or something. But I don't know if he, like, is actually dreaming I don't as far remember. as he considers. See, this is a book that I didn't read the cliff notes of actually so i don't remember the plot the idiot's god you read the idiot's no, god I, I read how to read where the wild things are for dummies <laughs> at six that's what my parents got for me yeah. no i just remember the illustrations really yeah. uh yeah so he had over 90 books illustrated himself he wrote 19 books and illustrated them as well yeah he was uh Jewish, which was a big impact on his childhood mm. because his extended family uh, died in the Holocaust. Oh, wow. Uh, many of his extended family died in the Holocaust, and it was it had a profound effect on how he experienced childhood, which sure. is you know meaningful considering he wrote so many children's books. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Uh, he was uh, also gay, but kept it from his parents, mm. and he had a partner for 50 years. But he, yeah, he, he kept it private because he didn't want to disappoint his parents, oh, which is sad. sad. Yeah. yeah. Um, he lived at, it was 29 West 9th Street, which I may have mentioned already, which is a really nice house. It's unclear if the facade has been redone or anything. Yeah, it, but looks, it, it just looks super, like, clean and fresh. Yeah. But it also looks like it could potentially be, have been like that. We also could see there was someone in there and he had the lights on and you could see in on the second floor the ceiling was like so cool it had like this weird like it was just like weird architecture like vaulted kind of but like circular and then the ceiling only like the inset ceiling was painted sky blue yeah yeah it was nice they had nice windows i don't know if that was original or not but probably i don't know I, I really don't know there was a guy in there i don't know if he saw us peeking into his house or I not. I don't think you know this. So there's one little anecdote uh, about Sendak that I wanted to recount. Okay. About a little fan, a little child that loved his book. Oh. Yeah. And he uh, recounted, a little boy sent me a charming card with a little drawing on it. I loved it. 
I answer all my children's letters, sometimes very hastily, but this one I lingered over. I sent him a card and drew a picture of a wild thing on it. I wrote, Dear Jim, I loved your card. Then I got a letter back from his mother and she said, Jim loved your card so much he ate it. What? <laughs> that to me was one of the highest compliments I've ever received. He didn't care that it was an original Maurice Sendak drawing or anything. He saw it, he loved it, he ate it. <laughs> He just wanted, Why did he eat it? He just wanted to consume. <laughs> he wanted it to Jim. be a part of him. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. That's cute and weird. <laughs> yeah. So that's the end of our uh, village, Greenwich Village houses uh, for, uh, you know, this tour. Obviously, yeah. again, there are tons more writers. Sure. But we go across town over to the East Village. The East Village. Yeah. And we visit with Allen Ginsberg. Oh. And William Burroughs, Jack Kerouac, the Beat Generation. Yeah. Uh, Alan lived in the area for decades. Right. In many different houses. The house that we picked was 206 East 7th Street. Okay. And yeah. that's uh, where Burroughs and Ginsburg lived together for uh, a time. And I don't, I mean, there's. Didn't you say Jack Kerouac lived there as well? He lived, well, he not. Uh, yes, yes, he did, but for as far as I could tell, a shorter duration. Oh, okay. I don't know if he wrote the one of his books, The Subterraneans, there or not. It's covered in this really great walking tour that we should call out. Do you want yeah. to talk a little bit about it? Yeah, it's this really cool walking tour that is an East Village poetry walk called Passing a Stranger. Mm -hmm. And... It was made, or sorry, it's called Passing Stranger. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at some notes here. And it was made by someone named Pike Malinowski mm -hmm. and in collaboration with WNYC. And it's like an hour and a half audio tour to follow along two miles. So you spend a lot of time, if you were to follow it as it's made, you would spend a lot of time sort of like, stopping and paying attention and it guides you in which way to walk and then tells you about all sorts of history from just that small little area. Yeah, absolutely. It was wonderful to listen to. We were walking a little bit faster than what the prescribed time was. So we both just listened to it kind of separate of walking around that area. Right. I'd kind of like to do it again yeah. at some point well it's funny because it also like calls to like go inside buildings and check things out which is right which not, right now is just not, not pandemic compliant no but <laughs> it was really a, a great experience for being able to place both locations but also how different uh, styles of poetry were interacting at that time you know yeah. there's the beat generation and then the new york school and then the second generation New York school, which is like the Tulsa gang and yeah. all, all sorts of stuff like that, as well as uh, art or, you know, authors, poets, artists that existed outside of that era. You know, the Walt Whitman's, the E.E. E. Cummings, uh, the W.H. Auden's of the world and bringing it all together in a way with select poems that really 
you know, they, they did a great job selecting poems that were engaging mm -hmm. and illustrative of the atmosphere of the neighborhood. Yeah. I also think, I think even just separating it out into like the different groups of people, it was maybe the first time I've heard all of that sort of talked about at once. And I think when I hear about poetry from the East Village specifically, I always just think about the beats and yeah. like that's it. Yeah. And so I'm always confused when there's like some poems from that that area and time frame that I really like and then some poems and writing that I just like can't even read two words that like that I'm just like like mm -hmm. you with the book like just like falling asleep um, and it made a lot more sense to me to hear about it in those terms where there were that there were like all these different groups of people working in different ways and some of them like I don't think I knew about the New York school mm -hmm. of poets I don't think I knew that that was like a specific group and that they like approached it with a lot of humor. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I think that's the type of poetry I like too. Like I often am like, mm, I don't really like poetry, but I do like poetry when it's like funny. Yeah. And kind of silly. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the surrealist angle as well. And mm -hmm. I mean, it was, uh, it was great to hear it all performed. Yeah. And I, yeah, I mean, there is the beat generation is definitely something that, you know, has had so much written spoken about it's not really I'm not going to talk anymore about it here yeah but it, yeah i mean the 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 new york school which you know had frank o'hara as one of the main people who was uh, the curator at uh moma i believe um I, I hope i'm right on that uh but the he died tragically uh fairly early and it oh. it makes you wonder he was only like 40 years old i think and, uh, you know, Ginsburg was the champion of the beat authors. Mm -hmm. Like he he sent out manuscripts for all of his, you know, friends and kind of created this community as a right. consequence. And, uh, you know, I wonder how much I mean, how much having one of uh, the New York school's own cut down so early mm. hurt. In addition to, you know, the beat generation just being in inherently, um, uh, you know, like drugs and like kind of degeneracy was like a part of it, too. Yeah. That attracted people in it's a different so way. romanticized. Yeah. And... I don't know. I mean, there, there's way more that could be probably unpacked about the whole thing. But it was great to have this walk as like an opportunity to kind of spur my interest. In... Yeah. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, like I said, I feel like I never really thought of it all like that. I kind of just grouped, like, poetry from that time all yeah. into one. And um, I'm excited to learn more about it and, like, listen and read more of those, that group's poems, yeah. too. There was a fantastic poem uh, midway through uh, from one of the Puerto Rican poets in the area, which is mm. another thing that the uh, the episode podcast episode did, <laughs> if you want to call it that, did a great job of exploring uh, where it was based on an actual event, or I guess 
the poem inspired the actual funeral procession of scattering the ashes on the Lower East Side. And mm -hmm. it was performed beautifully in the yeah. episode. And it was, um, yeah, just very, very illustrative of the neighborhood. Yeah. Well, it, I listened to it and then I said to Mike, like, do you think that you could still scatter ashes on the lake? It was really, it was like this poet had written the poem that was essentially like writing your last will and testament or like your, um, you know, whatever it's called of like, this is what I want. Yeah. And, but it wasn't like an official, like it wasn't notarized or anything. Right. Um, and then, yeah, the people that were fans and friends and they they took it seriously and they did what was in the poem. So like, how could it not be a beautiful funeral procession yeah when you're following instructions from a poem and not from like a legal document or something right but i do wonder if you could still do that now like yeah. that feels very like i don't know it feels like you'd get in trouble now yeah yeah i don't know it depends on especially what. with that many people like maybe throwing themselves down into the ashes like if that's really yeah we'll see We'll see. We'll see when we do it. Um, yeah. Uh, also want to call out that it, it's narrated for all you film fans out there uh, by Jim Jarmusch. So yeah, that was cool because I, I don't know if I've ever spent any length of time listening to him. So that was that was fun to hear. Um, also, I think he pronounces it Jim Jarmusch. Yeah, I, I, heard well, that I at specifically the just said he... Jarmusch because I looked it up several ways to how to pronounce it because i used to pronounce it jim jarmusch yeah same and i had this experience which i think is kind of funny that when i was listening to it and he introduced himself yeah i was like oh that guy doesn't even know how to say jim jarmusch <laughs> and then i was like oh that is that guy like how frustrating if to be famous and have everyone saying your last name wrong or maybe that's a good thing. Who knows? Or maybe it's a good thing. If you know how to pronounce it. I mean, it, we're watching it opinion, with like Kamala now, you know, yeah. people saying her name wrong all the time. And yeah. I think it's a different situation, but also maybe similar in a way. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. We had uh, an opportunity to speak with the producer through email. Yeah. Which was yeah. Really we, great. we sent out an email just to say that, you know, we found the project, we liked the project and wanted to connect and, and he responded right away. So yeah, we've gone, gone back and forth a little bit. So thanks if you're listening, Pike. We've, you know, love the support and um, have enjoyed listening to what you've done. It's been fun to just like connect with people that are doing cool, interesting New York-based projects in this last year while we've been doing this. Yeah. and then use what they've made to influence this project and yeah yeah everything pulls off of everything else yeah so moving out of the east village and into chelsea we're, i'm gonna i'm gonna go quickly over this one because we still have a bunch left and i don't want to uh, drag out people's attentions yeah. and enthusiasms yeah. too long uh, but we've also already covered this in another episode the chelsea hotel mm -hmm. I almost considered not, uh, you know, having this be one that I covered it, but I 
only wanted to call it out insofar as it seems like this really dramatic merging point and almost a passing of the torch of of the attention of artist celebrities from writers to musicians mm. that there is this uh changing of the guard that happens here as people you know as popular music becomes lyric and important mm. and something that uh people can be known for individually and not just like a folk tradition of songs getting passed down and but yeah i mean the names there are ab absurd uh, you know <laughs> Arthur Miller, Arthur C. Clarke, Dylan Thomas, Ginsburg, Leonard Cohen, Mark Twain, O. Henry, countless other people have stayed there. It was the city's, one of the city's first apartment co-ops oh. for a brief period of time uh, when it was built uh, and finished in 1885. Uh, and then it, uh, it wasn't long before that went out of favor as mm. like, uh, all of the population moved out of Chelsea and there was kind of like a, a bust in the neighborhood and not like a like a drug bust or something right. but like it just kind of you just know just it wasn't yeah. yeah people were more interested in living in houses than they were in living in like a big shared space gotcha. so then it turned into a hotel in 1905 and it has had long-term residencies which has since that's been phased out as well. Oh, okay. And it's now just a hotel. Okay. Uh, but there are some people that still live there that have been grandfathered in. Oh, cool. Yeah. And, uh, I wonder who those people are. Yeah, I don't know. It, must, it would They're be interesting. They're probably cool. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's a strikingly beautiful, um, you know, building. It really is. Yeah, it's in the either people call it like Queen Anne Revival or Victorian Gothic yeah. era. Uh, it's funny how beautiful it is. I'm always shocked, honestly, because I feel like I'm, I link the Chelsea Hotel so much with reading Just Kids, mm -hmm. where it's like not, is like not a beautiful place to live yeah. in that book. Yeah. And then you walk by it and it really is just like this gorgeous yeah. building. Yeah. It's under renovations right now, it would seem, or at least they're scaffolding right. all up around it. Yeah. But we got some, we got some footage. That, yeah. Yeah. Um, so moving along, there's another location in Chelsea. Just a couple blocks down uh, at 14 West 23rd. This was the uh, home of Edith Wharton mm. as she was growing up. Oh. And Edith Wharton was really important figure as far as we don't have a lot of other instances of this era, which was like the uh, like mid 1800s to like uh, first third of the 1900s or so. Mm -hmm. She was raised in aristocracy. A lot of her books are about the aristocracy mm -hmm. of New York and just in general. And she really suffered under the, or she, she was stifled. I don't know if suffered, it might've you know, driven her, mm. but uh, how women were treated at that mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. She w had to. She had her first novella when she was fifteen, but she had to produce it under a pseudonym because it was not something that women did. Oh wow! She wasn't able. What to, was her pseudonym? Uh, I don't know offhand. That's okay. She wasn't able to uh, produce her first novel until uh, she was forty. Oh wow! Yeah, uh, but once she published, she ended up writing fifteen novels, seven novellas. 85 short stories and like just countless uh, articles and poetry and things like that. Wow. Uh, yeah. She won the uh, Pulitzer 
1920, again. Oh, wow. Uh, for the Age of Innocence, which was the, uh, she was the first woman to win the Pulitzer, uh, the Pulitzer for Literature. Oh, wow. Yeah. And she also wrote Ethan Frome, which is a uh, famous novella. Mm -hmm. And that uh, is interesting uh, because I don't know if anybody's familiar with the magnetic fields. Uh, the magnetic fields, uh, who is principally Stephen Merritt, uh, made an album uh, called 50 Song Memoir, which each year of his life, he put out a different song. Mm -hmm. And his 1988 edition is called Ethan Frome. What year of his life was that? Mm, Do you know? I, I think is oh, yeah. either his late 20s or early 30s would be okay. my guess. Um, and yeah, there's a, a, there is a stage production of the whole 50-song memoir, which Jesse and I saw uh -huh. kind of when we were first dating. She bought no. tickets for us. Yeah. Really? I mean, it's like year one or year two. I mean, I, I would consider that. After that. Okay, well, whatever. Yeah. It was cool. It was a two-night thing, so he performed... 25. 25 on the first night and 26 through 50 on the second night. Yeah. And there was AV accompaniment. And so yeah. I guess at a certain point after the tour was over, they took all the accompaniment and made music videos out of each of them. So uh, we can send uh, or we can put a link to that music video. Yeah. But it's very simple. It's like a notebook drawing of the uh, uh the plot of Ethan Frome. Mm. And it, the plot is basically that uh, this narrator meets Ethan Frome in this like Massachusetts town and he's limping around. And he asks, he's just a notable character. He asks why you're limping around. And he's, he's like this, he doesn't clear as to why he is limping around, but he tells the story of his life mm. and he's got his wife and then he's got his wife's cousin. And he falls in love with his wife's cousin, of oh, course, no. but it's, you know, something that they can't, you know, uh, follow up on. Right. And his wife is like sickly or like, oh. like thinks she's sickly and behaves that way. And his life is miserable. Oh, and they, uh, the cousin and Ethan Frome decide that they are going to kill themselves by sledding into a tree. Oh, no. The last second he loses his nerve. And they, uh, this is the Cliff Notes version, by the way. Uh, <laughs> he uh, just turns the, the uh, sled just a, a little bit. And, uh, oh. you know, that's how he got hurt, right? And so... Does she make, does she die? Well, it's not clear. Oh, it's not clear. Until the, the very end, there's a twist, essentially, at the end of the, uh, of the book. They go back to the house, and the narrator tells it so as though you think you're hearing his wife because her wife is so sickly and whatnot but it turns out that the uh the moaning and complaining is actually from the cousin and that the wife has now been resigned to taking care of both of them they all live oh, in the same house wow. even though she it was like she was going to send the cousin away because she she picked up on the vibes oh, you my know gosh. and so she was it turns out that she was not in fact you know really as sick and bad off as she had to be oh. like that when when push came to seven and she had to take care of them she, she, she did, could but, but everybody was miserable so wow, they, what a horrible story is this the real ethan from story or is this the stephen merritt's version no, of this who is the he real thinks? story okay yeah okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh so yeah she was very well regarded in her time she was what a story yeah yikes it's a novella you could read it it's very you know it's shorter okay <laughs> 
Uh, she loved to travel. She crossed the Atlantic over 60 times, which what? back then was not a small feat. What? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you have to do it way of Greta back then. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the way of Greta. And so one last thing about her. Uh, her father's family, last name were Jones. And there's another phrase we candle Keeping burning about. Keeping up with the Joneses. It was based on Is their it based family. on them? Yeah. Oh my gosh, we're learning where all the phrases came from. What yeah. a surprise, writers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but yeah, they were real estate developers, so they were, oh. keep, they were keeping up with them. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we are, we're flying along, but uh, all of these people are important. I feel like I need to keep making oh. clarifications. Yeah. Uh, yeah, next, that's fair. We're going uh, uptown to the Upper West Side now. Okay, let's go. Nora Ephron. Oh, real curveball yeah. compared to some of these other um, writers. Yeah. Nora Ephron uh, was a, a journalist in the 60s and 70s as a young mm -hmm. woman. Mm -hmm. She um, got into screenwriting in the 1980s, and that's where people really know her from. Yeah. So uh, working backwards from uh, most recent to oldest. Uh, we have uh, Julie uh, from Julie and Julia. From Julia to Julia? I thought it was just Julie and Julia. Julie and Julia. This is the one about the chef. Oh boy. I'm in it now. Julia Child. Yes. Julia Child? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And a I woman I thought it was from Julie to just, Julia. I oh. don't know. I think it's just Julie and Julia. Anyway, very, uh, very, success uh, very successful film. Uh, yeah. Also, she and was... it's about like a woman who cooks all of Julia Child's recipes, right? That's right. Okay. Yeah. At least, at least we know the plot. Yeah. We know the cliff notes version. <laughs> she directed that. She also directed Sleepless in Seattle. Yeah, which you've never seen. I've not seen. Which shocked me. No, I have not seen it. I've uh, seen it a couple times. Yeah. Also, did you got mail? Which I feel like for some reason I think they're similar movies. Oh. Wait, I am. I'm pretty sure they're the same movie. <laughs> Don't they both have Meg Ryan in them? I think they might. Also, and Tom Hanks? Uh, that I don't know. Third movie, Whoa, which is really which is really why One I'm trying to get here. One of them ends at the Empire State Building. That's great. Okay. The third movie, which is where I was really trying to go, uh, 1989's When Harry Met Sally. That one's great, too. Which is really what... Uh, I think put her on the map. It wasn't the mm. first one that she wrote, but it was really uh, pretty meaningful. Yeah. And also really, like, for many people, the definitive New York movie. So. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, all good. The Very good movie. Yeah. Very funny. Yeah. And I'm she... really freaking out about this Sleepless in Seattle and You've Got Mail thing now, and I feel like I wish I had had time to figure out the difference. This is like we're. This is like the least important part of what we're talking about. <laughs> well, that's why I never watched them. It just seemed like the same thing. I'm pretty sure they're both like romantic comedy. They definitely are. Yes. And but yeah, and sleepless and see, maybe one is like someone has a column, and one is like a dating site, like pre-dating site. Yeah. Like early. Anyway, it really doesn't matter that much. They're good movies. Yeah. And uh, so we went to her house. We did. Well, it wasn't just the house. Let's be clear. It is. <laughs> oh, no, uh, that's true. It's like the fanciest it's the building, which is 2211 Broadway on 79th Street. We've walked by this 
so many times and every time I forget that it exists and I'm like oh my god that building is insane it's so it has like these gates it has like carvings it's huge it has a whole courtyard inside yeah it's too much it's too much it's something i mean i i wanted to go inside but there are guards i was you know like it's like not... the fucking buckingham palace it looks pretty crazy it's in insane there. she there's wrote i wanted to go in the courtyard but there's guards <laughs> she wrote a like... uh, piece in 2006 for the new yorker about how she fell in love with the apartment I'll just read a brief excerpt here. Okay. Uh, from the street, it's lumpen, middle European, and solid as a tanker. But its core is a large courtyard with two marble fountains and a lovely garden, she explained. Her five-bedroom apartment became home in a profound, probably narcissistic, and I suspect all too typical way, and it seemed to me that no place on earth would ever feel the same. She left five bedroom apartment in that plate how much does that cost well you know when Even harry met then, sally money that's insane to, it's back almost, then 2006 i mean oh, it was, <laughs> yeah i thought it, i thought you said 19 something. no um yeah there's something like i don't know how much time we have or like how much i want to get into this but i just want to talk about my feelings for a minute i <laughs> Cliff Notes version. Seeing that, okay, seeing that building up until today when we saw it in this new context, seeing that building as just like a building, Yeah. I have always thought it was so beautiful. I've always thought like, oh my gosh, who, like, what a, like, I'd love to go in there. I'd love to see those apartments, like daydream, like we could live there kind of thing. Clearly a daydream. There was some weird thing that happened when, like, when we were walking and you were like, we're almost at Nora Ephraim's apartment. And I'm like, oh, maybe it's, like, on one of these side streets. And then you were like, we're here. I got mad. I was, like, mad that I knew, like, I was kind of like, who does she think she is? Like, <laughs> yeah. Like who? And because then I started thinking, like, oh, actually, like, real people live here? Like, fuck them. Like, <laughs> Sorry, I've cursed a lot tonight, but like, just it. I don't know why it made me like really mad. Yeah. Well, I don't think there's no better we way can't... to transition into the <laughs> fact on. that oh. she tragically died of leukemia. <laughs> oh shit! <laughs> she well, was diagnosed with leukemia in 2006. I didn't know that. And right after writing that article. Well, I don't know. Around some time, I'm not sure. She. Uh, I'm glad she got to live there. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's fine. No, it's fine. but you know what I mean? It's Yeah, I get I'm it. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> she died of leukemia. She uh, contracted it in 2006. Oh. She didn't tell Whoa, anybody. That was really quick. Yeah. She didn't, well, she didn't she didn't die in 2006. She died oh, in 2012. Oh, okay. Maybe I did. Maybe I did say yeah. died in 2006. She contracted it in 2006. She died in 2012 because she was afraid, and she didn't tell anybody because she was afraid her projects would get canceled Aww. and she wouldn't get insured. So she wrote. She made. Um, she made from Julie to Julia. That's really what I think it is. Uh, I, and and like I While I don't want to. Was... Yeah, I don't want to stop the cameras and uh, like find out what it's, it's actually fine. titled. Um, yeah, while she was sick, she wrote it. Wow, I mean that's really impressive. Yeah, yeah. And 
yeah, I mean, I wonder like how many people have done that also because there is this like, I don't know if it would be a stigma, but like, yeah, people would be concerned and like uh, rightfully so, like this person's very sick and yeah. this is a big project yeah. and probably a lot of stress and like, is it a liability? Yeah. And yeah. yeah. So well, she, she died at age 71 from complications and pneumonia. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, oh. Um, but yeah, she left a lot of fantastic work. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's impressive. And I'd like, can I just <laughs> feeling uncomfortable? <laughs> I don't like I'm not mad at her and I'm not just like the language I'm using is more just like I don't even know how to. This is the thing. Like, I don't know how to even explain what I felt. It was just something right. about like seeing that as like a just an idea of a place where right. someone could live right. made me feel very magical. Yeah. Seeing it as a place where people actually live yeah. when like other people very much don't live like that. Yeah. It was just like, it's excessive and sure. it's kind of like disgusting yeah. that there's that much like in your face wealth right. in this city where like there's people that don't have homes yeah. and there's people that aren't able to like feed themselves and like we walk by like lines of people waiting for the food pantry and then there's like this palace yeah that's all okay that's all yeah. and i know that that's just what this city is but there was yeah. something that just like struck me so hard today yeah and it's not nora's fault like it's not i'm not saying no. it's i don't mean anything like it's not her and it's right. honestly no one that lives there it's just there's the concept of like the inequality that exists in this city yeah. was so strong when we walked up to that. Because I, I was just expecting like a, a regular brownstone or something, which is still fancy. Right. But like, okay, anyway, have I said, let's I don't move know. on. Have you said everything let's you said? <laughs> it's time to move on. Uh, we're going to transition to our final author. Uh, we went up to Harlem. Uh -huh. And so if you're interested in people that are uh, looking to make their work and their life about equality, we have... <laughs> well, this we had just gone to his house also. I had just come from this and had been talking about this particular author. Yes. Right before. Yes. Maybe that's part of what I was feeling. Okay. Maybe. Maybe it was. Yeah. Langston Hughes. Langston Hughes was a poet, a novelist, a playwright, and one of the leaders of the Harlem Renaissance. Yeah. And that's along with like. Zora Neale Hurston, Wallace Thurman, County Cullen, uh, Claude McKay, and others. Uh, and, you know, this is an era when, and his particular thrust was stressing racial consciousness and also with, a, a, you know, racial awareness that was devoid of self-hate, mm. which was something that was, you know, very much... Uh, a part of a black identity at that point mm -hmm. in a way that was this is like kind of propelled us into places where we are today right uh, with like understanding racial consciousness and like not uh not buying into denigrating stereotypes but like fighting against them and mm -hmm. forming positive understandings of, of race and his work in addition to this uh, racial consciousness and betterment was also kind of jazz poetry inspired. There was a lot of rhythm, like mm -hmm. folk and jazz rhythms that he incorporated into his work. It was cool. really cool. Yeah. And interestingly, there was some kind of immediate tension in the generation that followed his mm. in terms of uh, 
I guess, opinions on how empowerment movement should move forward. Oh, what was the next? I think he was he was uh, kind of at odds with uh, like the Black Panther and kind of like uh, overt aggressive oh, okay. uh, energies. Yeah. And uh, I guess people didn't feel like he went far enough. Mm. Um, ultimately, I think that was reconciled, like moving forward. I mean, he's uh, his ashes are uh, underneath like a, a local like community center up there. Oh, and, really? Yeah. And oh, wow. I mean, they're. Like the other places, there's a plaque uh, devoted right. to uh, his uh, life. At the house. Yeah, at yeah. 20 East 127th Street, which is a beautiful block as yeah. well, you know. Uh, and so he also had some run-ins with uh, the communist, uh, like, witch hunts that occurred, you know, in the McCarthy era. Oh. Yeah, where he, w I mean, he went to... Where they were coming after him as potentially being a communist? He, yeah, in the 30s, he went to Russia uh, with some uh, other uh, black uh, artists mm -hmm. and, at the time, and they were talking about like making a film that was you know, uh, critical of America's race problems. Okay. And that coincided with Moscow being able to build an embassy in America. So this is before the oh, Cold War. This is in yeah. between the two world wars. Right. And so once that actually happened, like the talk about uh, doing this film like died away um, because hmm. the Russia had gotten, like it was kind of like as a- Oh, he was like talking with the, the Russia. Russian. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, I mean, he was, he had some like really, uh, he wasn't a com, or at least he, he claimed when he was being, uh, you know, interrogated by the McCarthy era, you know, uh, trials, he claimed that he was not a communist. Okay. But it was, everything was done under duress. Yeah. And they had interrogated him privately before they brought him before the committee. Right. And so he ended up re like releasing an, an anthology of his poetry, but like removed the most controversial pieces because oh, he had, you know, because he didn't want to get arrested. He, the screws had been or... turned on him. Yeah, that's crazy. And uh, I think you know some people were critical of him for having done that, but it was a you know, I mean, this is a time where it was just a helpless, hopeless situation. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the whole the whole thinking about that is so crazy. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, what are you, you know, I don't think anyone can really judge something like that if you're, if you're not in the same position. And honestly, even if you are the same position, like, you're not truly in the same position. Like, everybody's life is different. So. Yeah. 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 But it was, I mean, it, I'm always interested in uh, authors or, that are also... Uh, leaders of movements and you yeah know, uh, this I mean uh, the the Harlem Renaissance is like one of the most compelling stories of Manhattan and New York history mm -hmm. and uh, so yeah it was cool to go up there and kind of think about that while we we're walking around yeah, yeah. well it's interesting um, we were talking about something else but we were talking about like books that were banned it's sort of similar to that too like the the power that someone can have when someone knows how to write and knows how to get all of their thoughts gathered in a way that 
is not only clear and legible, but also like engaging and related to something that is happening in the world around you directly, there's so much power in that. And I guess that's why it's scary to people. Yeah. Because there is the potential to make some sort of movement happen yeah. with something like that. Yeah. It's really cool and exciting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so that's the last of our authors. I didn't expect it to take that long, but I guess every every time we do an episode like this where we have a bunch of stuff, it always ends up filling up more time than we thought. Yeah, because we're not just like reading through the couple pages that you have yeah. written out there. We're also chit-chatting yeah. in the meantime. But I hope you enjoyed listening. If you have other authors that you like from New York City that we didn't cover, uh, throw it down in the comments sure. so uh, we can talk to you about them because uh, it's fun. It was It's fun to think about New York City being this, you know, mecca for writers. And I, I mean, still to some degree, but the the focus of power and and what writing is is just changing constantly. I mean, I, sure. I think we touched on it a little bit, whereas like what what writing is now and i feel like it's it is as much to support other types of content as it is content itself mm. you know mm -hmm. like uh screen writing you yeah. know or uh you know content for youtube preparing for something like that yeah or, i mean i'm sure there's still people that are writing poems and novels and absolutely. short stories just for the sake of that yeah but yeah, a lot of times it also it also seems to be supporting something. But yeah, I mean, I, th I think writing, you know, historically had captured the imagination in a, in a way that's different than it does now. Well, now we have so many options too. Yeah. Like it for a long time, writing and reading the written word in print in your hands was the only way to really have any sort of entertainment or knowledge or connection to people outside of your smaller circle yeah. and then came along all sorts of new technology and we're only getting more and more and more and more and yeah. yeah. But still remains one of the uh, the closest perhaps way of inhabiting somebody else's thought process. Yeah. 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 And I hope it remains. <laughs> For at least a little bit longer. Yeah. I'm not ready for any weird brain goggles or <laughs> whatever is going to get invented in the next 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, thanks again, uh, as always, for watching uh, the episode with us. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in. If you liked it, um, let us know by pressing that like button. And if you haven't subscribed and you want to, you can also do that. Share it with people. Leave a comment if you want to. We appreciate it all and we see it. And uh, yeah. Till next time, take care. We're going to be in Manhattan once more. Yep. Okay. Bye. Bye.